us. We're going to look at two of the three, but this passage of scripture, he gives three parables concerning the purpose and concerning the mission of the kingdom. That no matter where you are in life this morning, hear me, no matter where you are in life this morning, a believer and follower of Jesus, or maybe not, no matter where you find yourself this morning, I pray that through the words of the storyteller this morning, that you will see the heart of Jesus. You know, Jesus was a master storyteller. Jesus would paint vivid pictures of the kingdom in ways yet that were so simplistic and so reproducible in the cultural context in which he found himself, but yet they were, they were so deep and so powerful in their message. So, so for instance, Jesus might take, uh, you know, some very, very common things that were very familiar to the people of that day, and he would paint a picture through them of the kingdom. And they would grasp conceptually about, about farming or about attending a flock or things that they commonly did as a profession or as a, a normal rhythm of life. And he would paint a picture for them of what his kingdom was like. This was so unlike any other king who had, who had ever come. And people would just hang on his words. Just hang on his words. As we look at the two of the three parables this morning, I want to show you three things about parables in general because we're going to be looking at those for two weeks now and, and there'll be some more painted throughout the book of Luke. A parable, as I was talking to my children on the way into church this morning, they want to know what a parable is. And so I was trying to explain it to them. And um, uh, actually, you know, I'm 37, my eight-year-old, actually one of them gave a better definition than me. So I, I could use there. She said, it's kind of like a story with symbols. And I said, yeah, that's, that's a pretty, pretty good way to put it. But as we look at the gospel, uh, uh, the gospels uh, in, in God's New Testament, we see that there are common themes that run throughout parables. First of all, parables are relevant stories that are contextualized for everyday situations. So when you come to a particular passage in the New Testament and you see a parable and maybe you have a subheading that says the parable of, then he's going to be telling a story, things that would hit home to the context, yet would put handles on the kingdom message that people could grab onto. All right, but they're also parables are often, they often created a cultural irony. So often when Jesus would teach in parables, not only was he speaking into the face of a cultural and contextual issue, but he did so with, with some irony. Jesus would often use it to expose the, the opposing thinking about a kingdom. And so in actuality, he would be approached many cases where Jesus would be, be, be brought in and they would be asking lots of questions about him to try to catch him in a trap. And he would tell a story, a story that they had to agree with, and then out of that, he would expose their misdirected thinking about his kingdom and how it was so different than what they would have known the kingdom to be. But ultimately, the main concern of parables deal with the kingdom of God and man's response to it. So we, we see this morning, he's not just telling stories to be illustrations for his sermon. He is actually exposing and, and dealing with weighty kingdom issues and then how man will respond to those issues. Jesus revealed and concealed the message of the kingdom he was creating. And so this morning, as we dive into this rich, rich text of scripture, I pray that we will humbly see the kingdom challenge that Jesus wants to give us. As we look at these stories, I want to ask you, have you ever lost something? Have you ever lost something that mattered really deeply to you? And I mean, you literally just couldn't find it. Your wallet, 
or your purse or your wedding ring, maybe a family keepsake, or maybe they don't do this anymore, but we used to have home movies and maybe you lost this home movie of your kids. You know, as a, we've got, car, we have 18 backup copies, so you, we will never lose them. They would have to change technology where they no longer operated anymore. So you lose something like that or, or maybe lost a kid sometime or uh, you know, many of you that have young kids, you didn't laugh at that <laughs> because you are fully aware of that. You know, my, a lot of the kids and the young families in our, in our church are having young children and they're getting to that phase of life where before you blink, they're, they're gone. And I don't mean like they grow up and graduate. I mean, they are literally gone when you blink your eyes. You know, your kids are learning how to figure out how to work their legs. And man, they are gone in a flash. They're into everything. They're like Navy SEALs. They're, they're just here one second and then you look down and then they have disappeared completely. And I remember when our girls were younger, we had taken them to the beach one particular summer and on seeing my kids, you would think it would be absolutely impossible to lose a single one of them because, you know, I'm, I'm a sunscreen czar. So it's like they are so white that it would be impossible to misplace one of them. My kids, you know, like look very ghostly when we would go to the beach. And so it's very easy to spot them. Well, Emma and Anna had decided they wanted to go down to the water. And so we were both in the, in the water with some other family members and we were, uh, we were swimming. Well, Emma decided that she was tired of swimming and she wanted to go back and play in the sand. So I carried her up there and I set her in the sand in the shade and I, you know, I kind of watched as she got settled in and then we were just, you know, right off the, the beach there. So we went back into the water and I went back to join my family to play with Anna some. And when I got there, before I could get back and turn around, I looked back and Emma was not there. I literally had just left her. Like I have, and she was not there, nowhere to be found. You know, she was so young at this age. Like all parents, we panic. We panic and immediately begin running back looking for her. You know, I think Anna just, we just threw Anna. You know, we were in the ocean. Let's go find this other kid, you know. Uh, she couldn't swim either. So, uh, but so we got looking and actually Emma had just kind of, when I ran, I mean, I ran back frantic like a crazy person. And then I get up there. Well, Emma had just, tucked in behind a little beach chair, kind of nestled in under the chair there. She was little and was playing in the sand. And as I thought about that illustration, you know, I had Anna with me. She loved the water. She was having an incredible time. But how absurd would it have been for me to say, you know what? I don't see Emma, but if she doesn't pop back up, we can have other kids. We still have one you know, one out of two, that's a great bat average and uh, 500. And we can always have others if we want another one. Sure didn't enjoy her while she lasted. She was a great kid. No, of course we wouldn't do that. We would rip the place up in search of our daughter. Now, obviously I say it funny, uh, jokingly, but I didn't dump Anna in the ocean water and abandon her, but handed her, I mean, when we see no Emma, my reaction, we give Anna into safe hands. We're caring for our child. And then we rush to try to find Emma. And in a similar fashion this morning and next Sunday as well, Jesus wants to paint a picture for us of his heart. And so us as his children the heart we should have as well. If I may plead with you for a moment, I want you to please see this morning and next week the heart of Jesus for each one of you.
And now I don't mean because of any of your response to Jesus, because some of you may be in a place where you feel distant from Jesus. But I want you to see the heart of Jesus for his children, both lost and found. Jesus loves you so much. And he desires to embrace you not as strangers, but as children. And so with this posture in mind as our guide, I want us to consider the condition of our hearts toward him and toward his kingdom agenda that he has put before us as believers. And I want us to ask ourselves, how do we pursue a life on mission in the way Jesus did that is not based on our preferences or our context that's comfortable to us, but truly based on the kingdom agenda that Jesus modeled to spread the gospel of the kingdom. And I want us to read through the first few verses of Luke chapter 15. And I ask that you just listen to the story of Jesus. Listen to his stories as he teaches. Hear them through this kingdom filter that Jesus was operating under. And let's learn what, he, what, we, want, what we need to learn this morning about the heart of the master. Read with me Luke 15, beginning with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He tells a second story. What woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. God, will you just teach us this morning about your heart? God, as I have studied and prepared this week, my heart has just been overwhelmed with the understanding of how much you love and care for us and how diligent you are, God, for us. That you aren't just a God that sits on high ready to, to, to crack down on us, but God, you sent Jesus and you intimately came to us because you desire fellowship with us. God, may you help everyone in this building this morning see the love that you have for us. God, I, I beg you through the Holy Spirit, will you please impress on the hearts of all that are in here your great, great, great love for your creation. Such a great love that you were willing to sacrifice your son to die a literal, painful, grueling death to show your love for us. May we see that this morning, God, and you be our teacher. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we look at these two parables this morning, we got to begin by laying a little bit of groundwork from verses one through two. It's very easy when you come to a passage of scripture that's got a lot of red to skip what is written in black and go right to the red, see what Jesus had to say. But this is a very important to our context this morning, very important to our discussion. And so I want to kind of put up this framework that we need in order to properly understand the audience in which Jesus would deliver these parables to. 
It says in verse 1 that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Tax collectors and sinners have drawn near to Jesus. The intensity of what a tax collector was during this time period has been decreased because we all learned, if you grew up in church, we have learned in Sunday school that a tax collector, the most prominent one we know was Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. And the wee little man was he, right? Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And so if you're like me growing up in church, I, I learned this on a felt board. Any felt boarders out there? Yeah, so, so basically for uh, you who are in a different era, uh, you had this piece of felt that was a solid deal and you had these little cutouts, little felt cutouts of Bible characters. And so when the teacher would teach the story, she would say, here's Jesus. And, and, and Jesus was going down this road and so there was a sycamore tree and they would, they would put the sycamore tree up there, you know, and then they would say, then he came up and there was a little tax collector named Zacchaeus and they would just kind of go boop and put little Zacchaeus up in the tree like he's just a cute little guy. And so that's the picture that we had. Kind of this, this, this tax collector was harmless little men. Kind of like a playground bully who would just steal lunch money from people. That's kind of the picture we have of this. Kind of picture them kind of sitting behind this little homemade lemonade, lemonade stand looking thing. Just trying to make 30 bucks when he was only doing 25 bucks. Like that's kind of how we boiled him down. Very harmless probably picked on because he's so little and so insignificant and had no authority. But I want you to listen to me during this time. Rome is basically ruling the entire ancient world. Never had there in history been such a dominant nation like Rome. And they were a ruthless government. I want you to see, is there a, I think I have a, is there a map? Did I get that? Do y'all put this map up? Let me show you a picture. Okay, so, so, uh, so all right, no, there. All right, so, so see the ancient world there, okay? Now, you corporate didn't come down that far south into Africa, but if you could just picture this middle section being the ancient world, everything in red was what was falling under Roman control. So if you just kind of carve out um, uh, just this top section of just above the red and come over to about uh, India and then come back around through North Africa, that would have been the ancient kingdom. And everything in red had been dominated by the Roman culture. So this was a massive, massive culture who was just destroying and dominating people. And the thing about Rome is they weren't just walking through these areas. This was not the original Roman Empire. But as they took over each place that was located on this map in red, as they would take it over, they, were not, they were, weren't coming in as diplomatic men, coming in and bringing goodwill to others. And so then the Roman Empire spread because everybody liked what Rome was doing. Now, they were ruthless people. There are accounts of Rome conquering cities and taking tens of thousands of the residents of that city, men, women, and children, and crucifying them along the road like street lamps all the way into the city. So as someone would come into that city, they would see the ruthlessness of Rome and the power of Rome. And so they would, as they traveled in, they would literally, you could walk the road and see people just hung on crosses as far as you could see, tens of thousands of people. And this was what Rome did. They were, they were just oppressive and dirty. I mean, just ruthless. That's what you got a picture about Rome. But now in order to conquer nations the way in which Rome had done, and in order to sustain a kingdom that stretched basically from England to India, 
Rome had to have a massive army. There was no like pushing the nuke button and just blowing people off the map. There was an army and they had to have a huge one to maintain their influence. And so basically, what they, when they would conquer a city, they would hire mercenaries and these mercenaries would work for them for some promises of what they could provide for them. They'd give them a bunch of stuff, give them some money and they would create these armies. So now you see why a tax collector was so hated because how do you pay for a large, oppressive, ruthless army? Taxes. So you collect taxes to fund the army. So many of the tax collectors were actually funding the price for the persecution of their own people. So do you see the outrage here? That some of those that Jesus had drawn, this was not like drawing near for Jesus to like punish them. This was like sitting down and Jesus gathered up this group of people and in that party were tax collectors. And they would have seen these people, many of them that looked at Jesus and saw that he was hanging with tax collectors. They may have had family members who had been ravaged by Rome, maybe murdered by Roman officials. And they could see these tax collectors as the cause of it because they were giving the money so that the army could oppress the people. So Jesus is in the middle of those tax collectors, despised people, people that the, the nations would have seen as murderers and villains that were aiding the oppression of the people. So Jesus was hanging out with hated people. So you see when they say, can you believe that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors? They're literally saying, can you believe this guy who says he's going to save the world is helping and, and spending time chummy with these guys who are funding these, these, these armies that are destroying us? But there's a second group. It says there's tax collectors, but then there's also sinners drawing near. Now, when we hear the word sinner in this text, I don't want us to mistake this in this context for everyday people. Like, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, sinners. Because in this time period, this would have been like a, a, a sinner during this time would have kind of been like a class of people, like a caste, like in a caste system that you would literally be born into, okay? This is like your lot in life. You are a sinner. So sinners here would be a group of people that were marked by their sinfulness, prostitutes, you know, strippers. Now, I don't know, I have no biblical evidence if there were strip clubs in the ancient world, but they would have been in this group. Slave traders, tax collectors, and possibly even some who were cursed physically. So people that had deformities, people that were probably beggars because of their, 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 their physical handicaps. All these people would have been in this group and people would have seen their handicap. If we have seen even Jesus' disciples would question, who sinned, this guy or, or his mother, to make him in this physical condition that he's in? And Jesus would have to, so they would be seen as sinners and those who were, uh, their, their, their physical limitations were caused by their sinfulness is what they would think. And so because of this, many in the religion, religious world would not have anything to do with them because by being around them, they would be seen as unclean. So they're looking not only as Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and a bunch of, uh, of, of wild people that are sinful people, but Jesus is indeed an unclean being in their presence. You know, priests would not go near them because that might defile him. And so Jesus is in the middle there and he is spending time with them. And so uh, at this time, to, you know, but, but Jesus was, was literally with the outcast of culture. People who by their nature of their profession or social, social situation were sinners that were completely disconnected from God. They were considered unclean and disconnected. 
Now, what is interesting here is that Jesus was teaching a message. Hear me. Jesus was hanging out there, but he was teaching a message that was in direct contrast to their way of living. Jesus was not drawing a crowd by, by just saying, oh, don't worry about those Pharisees, man. Just, let's have a party over here with Jesus. No, he, he taught a message. And the interesting thing is they were captivated by his teachings. Teachings that he would speak of a kingdom and they'd be like, it'd be completely upside down, not only from what they were living, but what they had been taught from the religious elite. It would be completely different but yet they were captivated by it. Their minds were blown. He was drawing great crowds around him. And his love for them that was unlike anything they had ever experienced was drawing them in. Such a richness of text here and a side point that when the, the gospel of the kingdom is taught and spoken, even the worst of the worst are intrigued and drawn to the teaching. It's so, it's so counterculture. So, so far, we have tax collectors and sinners around Jesus, but they're not alone. We see in the distance that there are Pharisees and there are teachers of the law. They're the, they're the, the, the church folk are also there, and they're muttering. Now, you've got a picture here. The Pharisees are the super Christians. They have it all together. They are clean. They know how to, to, to tithe. As we looked last week about them tithing their spice racks. They were, they were walking in moral uprightness. They only watched PG movies. They, they listened to Christian music only. The whole nine yards. They were the elite. They were captivated by a culture of Christianity or religion, if you will. And not only are they gathered around with the others, but they are making some direct accusations of Jesus. They were noticing who Jesus was with. They noticed he was receiving them and having a meal with them. This is a very intimate gesture from Jesus. Jesus was approached constantly by people, always having crowds pressing into him. But here, he is actually spending time by having a meal with these people. And what was being created here was a community that was very familiar to what I, similar to what I believe is the heart of the mission of the church today. Because you see, the grace of God creates a unique community unlike the world has ever seen. So Jesus not only met with them, but he welcomed them into community. He shared a meal with them in their home, which is a very intimate interaction. They were no longer a target for Jesus as they had been for Pharisees. But these are people that he loved in the midst of their brokenness and he proclaimed a direct truth to their life. I'm afraid that Jesus wants to teach us this morning as a church of the danger of creating communities that are centered on religion and not the gospel. So we find ourselves with a desire to reach out to the lost, but not by welcoming them into community. They remain a target in the distant, inferior to who we are. We have the savior complex often that we are coming to rescue. And I pray that we see from this passage that Jesus that, that he, did, he, he brought them in. They were, they were no longer his target, but they were people that he was getting to know in life so that he could speak truth to them. And if we as the church don't pursue the kingdom the way in which God is leading his church, then we will continue to fail at reaching the tax collectors and the sinners. We'll fail to reflect the true heart of Jesus to the world. The majority of time by the Pharisees were spent in the temple studying the law, studying the word, having Bible studies. They were gathering in buildings to shelter from the world so they could just study, study, study. 
but not engaging the mission field in which the study and the nature of God would have led them to. And Jesus, on the other hand, he was, uh, he was saturating the world with his truth. And I think he's calling us as a church to see that if we're going to have the nature of the kingdom in us, that we will be drawn to go to the people and places that Jesus would with news of the kingdom. Let me read a quote from Tim Keller. He said, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted are not attracted to our contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the broken and the marginal avoid church. And that can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we may be running the risk of not declaring the same message that Jesus did. So I ask, what is the message that we are proclaiming? So the parable, though, it teaches us. So as we look at that, 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 that kind of shows you who was there. Pharisees, teachers of the law, sinners, tax collectors. Jesus. Complete melting pot of people. And yet Jesus then in that place tells two beautiful, simple stories of his heart. And we'll look at the third one next week. But we look at the parable of the lost sheep. A shepherd who had lost one of his 100 sheep and who you would have thought he had lost the entire flock. We see a story of a woman who lost a coin, which would have been about a day's wages. She still had nine days' wages saved up and lost one, destroys the house looking for that one coin. And I think from this we learn through the parallel and the symbolism what Jesus is trying to teach us about engaging those who are lost. And I want to, I want to highlight just three quick things. First of all, the mission of the kingdom is strategic and intentional. We have been put on a mission the mission of the kingdom is strategic and it is intentional. Let me explain that a little bit. As we live on mission for Jesus, there is an intentionally strategic way in which we pursue the lost. And the truth is, it may put us among people in situations that are incredibly uncomfortable. Now, I believe that we are to make disciples as we are going. I believe that. I believe in our rhythms of life, God has placed us in a place where we are to be making disciples. But I also firmly believe that as the messengers of the kingdom, that if we are to model life the way that Jesus modeled for us, we will find ourselves among people who look differently, who think differently, who value differently, who act differently than us. That's the nature of the kingdom. In fact, this parable, Jesus is addressing those who had not embraced that. He is addressing the religious that said, guys, here's the mission field. It's all around you. This is who you're engaged. Hear are my stories this morning pointing to that. Jesus would say in John 15 and John 13 and John, uh, Matthew 10 that a servant is not greater than his master. So he says that your life should look like mine because if I'm the master and you are the servants, your actions should look like mine. And yet... Yet in the name of safety and protection, or maybe under the code words of community and discipleship, we intentionally shelter ourselves from the very ones that Jesus would have sought out. And we spend time with, that he would have spent time with, and we avoid the very mission that he would have engaged in. 
And the irony of this is Jesus not only found himself among the lost, but he also humbled himself for our benefit. He humbled himself for our benefit and he wrapped flesh around his deity and he became man. And this would be totally against the very nature and comfort of, what, of God's where he would have found himself. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, and I'm just going to have to read it because I could not say it any better. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as a matter of taste and pleasure, would never have been found among the publicans and sinners, nor among any of the guilty race. By his comfort and pleasure, he would have never found himself there. If he had consulted his own ease and his own comfort, he would have consorted only with pure and holy angels and the great father above. But he was not thinking of himself. His heart was set upon the lost ones. And therefore he went where the lost sheep were. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He said, the more steadily you look at this parable, the more clearly you will see that our Lord's answer was complete. We need not this morning regard it exclusively as an answer to Pharisees, but may we look at it as an instruction to ourselves, for it is quite as complete in that direction. He says that even God, to, to come down and engage us, would have been against his comfort. But he came to redeem us because he was after the lost. That was essential for his mission. And I love the way Spurgeon says that. So I asked this morning, how intentional are you in reaching the lost? I, ho I would hope that I would be pleasantly surprised if I polled the room, and I'm not. But I do ask rhetorically, how many of us could honestly say that we had a gospel conversation this past week with someone that was lost? How many of us could really look and say the heart of Jesus is for the lost sheep and we ask ourselves, how many times did I attempt to engage someone with the good news of the shepherd? I want you to picture with me for just a moment. Imagine, if you will, that if we got ready to leave today and we were to walk outside and one of the gazillion trains which comes through this downtown was making its way down the tracks. But you looked over at the crossing and there was a car stalled out on the tracks and you're the only one around, what would our reaction be? First of all, it'd be terror at the reality of what we were about to see happen and we're the only ones around that could do anything about it. But then I think our panic would instantly turn to action. We would go and bang on the door of the car. We would try to push it across the tracks. We would try to do whatever we could to keep that car from getting hit by that train. But now what if we said walked outside and we saw this particular thing taking place. And what if we were to say, man, I hope somebody gets them off the tracks. We said, God, I pray that you send somebody to help them get out of that car. And then we went on about our lunch plans. You know, Sorry person in the car, we'll pray for you. Got it. But yet, for many of us, we know that we are walking through life among people who are walking without the news of Jesus. And we often pray for the lost. We pray for their salvation from imminent death. But often we never think that we might possibly be the answer to that prayer. 
that just maybe the one that God has laid on our heart with compassion is the one he is sending us to. Jesus didn't love the things of the world. He didn't love sin. He despised anything that was adverse to him. He despised the the lifestyles that those he was sitting around. This was not Jesus condoning what they were doing. He despised it. He's God. And so anything opposed to him, he despises. But yet, he loved the glory of the Father so much that he sacrificed reputation. He sacrificed comfort. And he did it all for the sake of the gospel and the glory of his Father. He could have gone and done a preaching tour through every synagogue in the ancient world. But he found himself among those who were not giving his father glory so that he might lead them to that place. So we must see this morning that, that as we look at the mission, the mission of the kingdom is strategic and it's intentional. There's a second thing, and that is that the pursuit of the lost is relentless and unwavering. The pursuit of the lost is relentless and it is unwavering. We see this in verses four through seven of, of the sheep, and then we see it through the parable of the coin. These both illustrations, they were relentless. Relentless means to continue in something steady and persistent. Jesus would use the illustration of sheep as the illustration for those he was with. And, and the Pharisees saw the heart of God through separation and ritualistic purity. That's how they disenfranchised people. They wouldn't hang out with the impure. But Jesus uses sheep. Now, in this time, a sheet would have been like a small business. The, the 100 sheet would have been a major asset for the owner. And being the shepherd was a major undertaking. So with 100 sheep, and you only lose 1% of your assets, you might just let them go, right? You would never risk the safety and comfort of the 99 for one sheep that was lost. Now, what I love about this parable, parable is that when it says that Jesus left the 99 in open country, this does not mean that he left them helpless. It does not mean he left them unprotected. In this particular instance, there would have been other shepherds a part of this. He left them in a pasture which had plenty of food. He left them in a safe place that they would have normally kept the flock, which would have been free from a lot of, of, of predators. Open country would be like leaving them in the confines of this pasture. So for the shepherd, he doesn't put on hold the care of the 99, but he's persistent for the one. He's relentless. He's unwavering. For the shepherd, he would put others, you know, working to watch the flock because the sheep are not smart. They are easy to be attacked by predators because let's just be real here. Have you ever been intimidated by a sheep? No, they have nothing. So Jesus would put them there and, and, and he would trust that they would be protected, but then he would go after the one Sheep, And I love what happens at the end. It's, it, we sang about it this morning. It says he will put the sheep on his shoulders and carry them back rejoicing. Do you see that? This is not like, you dumb sheep. Why did you wander off? There's 99 over here. Could you not see that you're by yourself and you need to be with 99? Could you not see where to go? Now, get back over there. No, the shepherd reaches down puts the sheep on his shoulder, and he comes back to the flock rejoicing. That's the heart of, the, of God for his lost children. The woman with the coin, what does she do? She doesn't find that one coin, or she doesn't say, look, I've got nine days' wages. I can afford to lose one day's wages. It'll turn up. No, she tears the house up, and when she finds it, she gathers her friends and says, let's, let's, let's party. I found my day's wages. Let's get together and rejoice. 
My prayer for us as a church is that we see that it is time that we find ourselves burdened for the lost and unsatisfied with just being 99% complete, but that we are relentless until the king returns in pursuing and finding the lost, that we are horrified that people we see every day do not, are not walking in the joy of Jesus. We're not just trying to conform people to look like us and believe like us and think like us. We're trying to get people to see the joy of walking with the great shepherd what it means to walk through life with the one who knows our hearts, who loves our hearts, and, and who loves to be with us. That's what the purpose of missions and evangelism is. It is not guilt-driven where I say, well, I guess since I'm a Christian, I'm going to go out and share. No, there are people who do not know the shepherd. They do not know the love that he has for them, and we want to go so that they may know his love. So we relentlessly pursue them unwavering because we want them to know the joy that we have found in him. There's a final thing, and I'll end with this. The final thing that we see from this parable is that the fruit of the mission is joy and celebration. I love how both parables end with rejoicing. It says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In this parable, we are reading a foreshadowing of what Jesus would experience on our behalf. Scriptures teach us that the motivation for the endurance of the cross we read in in Hebrews chapter 12 when it says for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God how did he endure the cross for the joy set before him for the rejoicing that through his sacrifice lost sheep would follow the shepherd so what brings you joy in, in, in the mission? Is it discipleship? Is it worship? Or is it your heart filled with joy over the same things that light up heaven? The text tells us that there was more joy over that one lost sheep than over 99 that never went astray. And it is so easy to lose sight of this. Now, this doesn't mean that it is a good thing to go astray. It means that for that moment, there is incredible joy over a restored sinner. Does that bring you joy? Does it do anything in your heart to think that when you see your brother and sister, as you have diligently poured into them, restored into fellowship with Christ to know that the heavens erupt. That there is a, an eruption in heaven with joy over that one sinner. Kingdom work is not insignificant. That one conversation that you, call, you, you feel God leading you to have with someone that you know is not walking with Jesus, it is not insignificant. It has the power to create such joy in heaven as their celebration there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Does that bring us joy? Because the heart of God was for the sinner 
and his aim for his mission was set on that. Well, next week we're going to finish this chapter but I, with a very, very, very important passage for us. But I want, I want to end with this. Jesus doesn't end these two parables with application points. There is no go and do likewise. There is no, you've heard this, now go do. Jesus just leaves it at the capturing of his heart. And what I think this passage does best is that it shows us Jesus' love for the lost. I believe in a room this size that many of you do not realize just how treasured you are to Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, or maybe you are not walking with Jesus, I pray that you see his heart for you this morning. I don't care where you've been, what you have done, how evil you feel that you have been. Because from this set of stories, consider the audience. Imagine the most deplorable of people in our time and see that that is exactly who Jesus said aren't outcasts, but are my lost sheep, my lost coin, my lost children. That's love, people. He goes after the people that most people are holding their children tighter to them when they are around. He's a loving, loving God. And we're going to see next week that even through our unfaithfulness, he is after us relentlessly. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that if you leave here with nothing else, that you leave here knowing that Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Followers this morning, see the love of Jesus. See the people that Jesus' heart was broken for. My prayer for you and for this world is that we can come to a place where we are absolutely consumed with God in our life and through this to recognize our absolute calling, to leave the comforts of what we know, joining hands and gaining strength from that to seek out the one lost sheep and the one lost coin. May we be a church whose heart is for the things that Jesus' heart was for. We're not asking and discussing anything this morning that Jesus did not that he did not abide in him. It's his nature. So as his disciples, as we say we are disciples of Jesus, may we see God massage and break and remold our hearts to be bent towards those in which he came to seek and to save. Let's pray together.